Take your Bibles this morning and let's journey to Romans chapter 12 together. And God willing, we'll be at the opportunity to finish this chapter, the first chapter of the practical portion of this book. For those of you who are guests, we attempt to go through one book at a time here in our morning services and evening services at Grace. And um, for the last oh, year and eight months, we've been studying the book of Romans and seek to wrap up this book by the end of this year. Romans chapter 12, this morning we'll be considering uh, verses 12 to 21. If you are in need of a Bible, if you don't have the Bible on your device or maybe forgot yours in your car or at home, we have ushers in the back ready to lend you a Bible for the service. If you just slip up your hand, keep it up high, they'll find you and we'll go from there. I want to read these verses. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to take a little bit more of an inductive approach where our primary application to this text is going to be at the conclusion of the sermon, uh, not necessarily explicitly throughout the sermon, okay? And I'll explain why here in just a moment, but let's read these verses together, 17 to 21 of Romans 12, and, and we'll continue on. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We've divided this chapter of 21 verses into four sections. Verses 1 and 2 was the foundation upon which uh, we've given a metaphor of a house to this, um, to this chapter. Every house, solid house, needs to have a good foundation. That's verses 1 and 2. We talked about community. In verses 3 to 8, we've talked about compassion. In verses 9 to 16, the overflow of that compassion leads to what we've titled here commission. The third floor is our commission. So foundation, community, compassion, commission. But really, verses 9 to 21 is all grammatically connected. And we began verse 9 by talking about love, and we'll highlight that here throughout this morning. But love has a tremendous influence, not just among the body of Christ, but also in the community that needs Christ. Remember that. Love has a tremendous influence among the body, but also in the community. And that's where we want to head this morning. If you've studied this along with me and you have a good commentator, you've probably run across a, a handful of commentators that, that describe the way Paul concludes uh, verse uh, concludes chapter 12 uh, this way. They call it uh, paranetic writing. Right? Paranetic writing. Um, or para paranesis. Simply, folks, all that means, um, this was a style of writing that the first century would have been familiar with. It was, a, it was actually a style not just of writing, but of oration, where it could grab the people's attention uh, to um, teach them something moral, 
And this writing or oratory relied heavily on uh, historical allusions to prove its point from different authors. Generally, paranetic writings were loosely structured and the author would move quickly from one topic to another uh, without seemingly heading in one particular direction. Um, I really believe that this is paranetic in nature, but what Paul does here, he does use some what seems to be at the surface some pretty random statements. But in this particular uh, part of this paragraph, all of these seemingly random statements are all about unbelief and our relationship with unbelief. But remember, this is the final floor of this house. It's assumed here that we will have a relationship with unbelief if we live well and have built the foundation well. Verses 1 and 2, we're, we're living healthily inside the community and we've, and we've practiced compassion that we've described here in verses 9 to 16 as uh, love that's holy and love that's relational and love that's passionate and, and love that's aware in all those particular ways. And this type of foundation and healthy community that loves this way, way is compelled now to approach the commission, to approach the obligation that we have to give the gospel to a world who needs Christ. The Apostle Paul here did not begin this practical chapter with evangelistic outreach. He concludes the chapter with it. It's assumed here that, that people that do and are prepared to bring Christ to a lost world have a measure of health, spiritual health. And they may be new in the Lord, but at least they're growing or they've been in the Lord for a long time and their stealth and their growth. And it's assumed here that by the time we get to verses 17 to 21, that we're going to be well prepared to interact with lost people who need Jesus Christ. So these are not merely random imperatives about how you would respond to someone that doesn't know Christ that you've not known well. The context here, and we're going to explain this, is not randomly coming across enemies of the gospel and knowing how to respond. The impression here, grammatically, and I think within the context that we see here, is this is the way we naturally have learned to respond to people that we've known for some time that might pose themselves as an enemy to you in the gospel. Paul's heart is not just to address it, right? Sternly, and then to remove yourself from it permanently. The whole idea is here, how do we answer? And then how do we continue to relate? So, let's go through these imperatives here uh, together. And hopefully, uh, by the end, we'll understand in a more balanced fashion, how we are to relate with the lost world that has chosen to be, at times, an enemy of the gospel or your enemy because you own the gospel. It says here in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
The idea of payback here is literally recompense, and your translation might say that. It means to penny for penny. It's a similar idea of 1 Timothy chapter 5, where as parents get older, children are to recompense their parents, pay them back penny for penny for all their parents had invested in them. If they're going to be wise children, they're going to want to care for their parents when their parents can no longer uh, care for themselves. And the parents are saying, I knew that was in the Bible somewhere. Now I can... When we are wronged, our old sin nature usually drifts to situation-specific retaliation in some detail. I've seen this on social media from believers who have been attacked in that platform. I've seen this in the political arena for believers who have been attacked in that environment. I've seen this in the Christian education arena as well as as. as Believers in that environment receive some type of attack and and all of a sudden there is an automatic reaction to want to retaliate penny for penny. And Paul says, you know, as we interact with with unbelief, this this is never to be not just the mindset or the action of someone who's built on the right foundation, healthy in the community, and knows what love is. Verbal, emotional, physical payback is not an option for those who call themselves Christian. When Paul uses the word payback here, he doesn't use this term in a context where a Christian has no other option. There are times throughout the scriptures where it was clear when a Christian's backed into some type of a corner, typically physical, where... Within the law, right? Did you, within the law of Moses and within what we'll get to starting next week, Romans 13, within the confines of Mosaic law or human law governed by or instituted by God, we can, when backed into a corner, physically protect ourselves. But, but generally, that's not what the Apostle Paul's dress, addressing here. Okay. Uh, if you know and you study animals at all and animals that attack what do we always know about those animals when I was in South Africa last year and we're going into Kruger Park and on a a little safari for uh, a day or two um, they said don't ever get out of the truck as a matter of fact don't let an extremity go over the side of the truck and never stand up while your head goes above the truck so okay I don't think you need to ask why in that situation because they are ready with a lot of stories of people who had done so and come back headless, literally, or limbless, right, or missing a limb. But they do have guided tours when you get out of the truck. You can go with that, guided, that guide and actually sleep in the wilderness. I don't know who in their right mind would do that, but apparently <laughs> a lot of people do that. And, and uh, they go through these details. And I sat next to, on the safari, someone that had just gotten done with the two-night um, excursion into Kruger Park and came back alive with all their limbs. And, and they were going through all these details uh, of what they were not to do. And they said, basically, it doesn't matter the size of the beast or the venomous nature of the serpent. They said, always remember that animals or creatures are more scared of you than you are of them. 
If they can find a way to escape, they will. Right? Now, we would know that that's not true if they have rabies, right? <laughs> then they're just delirious, right? The idea here is this. If you have a way to escape retaliation, do it. Run from retaliation, but don't just leave your brain parked here with this exhortation, this imperative, because all of these exhortations come together and we'll come to some practical conclusions here at the end that, that hopefully will make a very certain sense to you. Life presents very few times when a Christian is cornered. Most of the time, when we are affected by evil, we have ample opportunity to escape payback. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ do this? When he had the opportunity to fight back, he didn't. Didn't he do this when... It wasn't his time yet to die, and those were coming to lynch him, to kill him, and it's not his time, so he fled. Didn't the Apostle Paul do the same thing? Most often in life, we have the opportunity to avoid retaliation or payback, and that's okay. Very few times, which most of us will never face, are we pressed into a physical corner and we have to get in self-protection mode, we're under the law, we're allowed to defend ourselves. Let's not get caught up on the exception rather than the rule. Generally speaking, we have the opportunity to flee retaliation. And then he goes here next in verse, the second part of verse 17, to a phrase that seems to be, where did that come from? Well, this is part of that peritonetic understanding, but it still has, it's still an imperative that teaches us how we're to exist among unbelief for the gospel's sake. It says here, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If you want to understand, uh, underline two, one phrase and one word here, um, the sight of all men um, would be both moral sight and physical sight. In other words, uh, we should be known for being around unbelief, and we should, while we're in their sight and enjoying their friendship, be able to appreciate that which is morally right while we're with them. Respect what is right. Respect what is right. Literally, this means have careful regard for that which is noble, one author says. Unsaved people are able, because they're made in the image of God, they're able to enjoy noble, moral things. As a matter of fact, unsaved people do this all the time, in a lot of ways. While they, because they don't know Christ, and they're, they're not able to experience the level of, the degree of self-control that grace and salvation brings to a believer, and while they, they might be out of self-control, immorally in some ways, the longer you're around decent, unsaved people, you realize that they're made in the image of God and they can do and enjoy moral things. And we are to be in their sight. 
enjoying these things with them in their sight. And this certainly is different than the way many of you were possibly reared where various texts of the Bible would, would compel us out of their context to recluse ourselves, to pull ourselves away, to embattle ourselves behind our religious conviction. And, and we no longer were allowed to be in the sight enjoying moral things with the lost because to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. Texts like that, taking out of their context, and the Apostle Paul has a present active imperative here. You respect what is right in the sight of all men. Of all men. I've often thought about this and mentioned it in a handful of times to different individuals and groups both here and abroad that I think one of the saddest realities of the Christian experience is to when a, when, a, when a seasoned saint passes away and, and their homegoing celebration is taking place and, and the room is just packed full of Christians that respected their walk. And there's not even an unsaved person to speak of in the room. I think what a tragedy that is. And no one ever really thinks about that. And that's okay because there's a lot of godly things to extol in the life of the deceased saint. But where along the line did we miss this imperative? Why haven't we been or why can't we start respecting that which is right in the sight of all men? Enjoying that which is morally good together. I think Acts 9, Tabitha Dorcas is a wonderful example of what it should look like for Christians upon their death as people mourn their li the loss of their life. Surrounding her deathbed are women from her community, saved and unsaved. And she made cloaks to keep them warm. She had a relationship. She respected that which was right among the women in her community, and she enjoyed their company. Verse 18, if it be possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be prepared for peace with anybody, Paul is saying here, but understand it may not be possible with everybody. That's just the mindset. Be prepared for peace with anybody, but understand it may not be possible with everybody. And, and my friends, this is really not an imperative that you can understand unless you've actually tried to respect that which is good in the sight of all men. In other words, you're really not going to know how to live this practically because a lot of us just really don't know a lot of unsaved people really, really well. As a matter of fact, if you look back over your life with unsaved people, you, you might 
uh, and you've been in, in Christ for any number of years, you might find it difficult to remember even a time, to recall a time where you tried to be at peace and someone says, no, I'm not going to be at peace with you. But the more we interact with the lost and we develop relationships with them for Christ's sake, I guarantee you there's going to come a time where there's going to be a disagreement. And in that disagreement, just know these two things. You should be prepared to keep peace in that situation, but also understand not everyone will want to remain peaceful with you. But in that moment, how is your conscience settled? I tried. I tried. I prayed. I loved. I respected that which was right in their sight. I did what I could do. If they've chosen to walk away, at least I've honored God. At least I've honored God. There's a position and a disposition of a Christian. It's always to pursue peace, but not everyone will pursue the same with you. As we've already stated, this is kind of out of your control. But as what, what is within your control is for every man to know that you would always prefer peace. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We've already seen that retaliation, penny for penny, is never an option for a believer. And so revenge, your vengeance is never an option for the believer. The grammar here tells us literally to not just, I think the NASB does a, a tremendous job, the New American Standard, leave room for the wrath of God. Literally it means to, to, to give place to it and to know that it's going to have its way. So in other words, when you vacate the vengeance room, God's vengeance never leaves. And it will have its way, so you don't even have to worry about vengeance. God always avenges his own elect. I can remember one Sunday afternoon, we left church, we went over to a family's house. This was when I was uh, fifth grade. And uh, my buddy and I, Tim, after lunch, we just went out on our bikes. This is over by Fairfax Elementary School, if you're familiar with the uh, geography of Mentor. And... And we were just playing, doing some dirt bike stuff on our bikes and just having a good time that fifth graders do on a Sunday afternoon. And all of a sudden, these five bigger high school boys wandered into the parking lot and the playground, and they decided that they were just going to bully us a little bit. And isn't that what bullies do? They just kind of find weaker people, right, and prey on them as weaklings. Um, but anyways, these five big dudes started to, uh, you know, even literally physically push us around a little bit. And uh, it was one of these times I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet. So I was just a fifth grade kid. And uh, there was two of us and five of them. They were rather large. They just weren't verbal. They had gotten physical. And I was terrified. And we kept backing up and backing up and backing up and backing up until they pressed us against the wall of the school. Right? Uh, I was a, I hit my growth spurt yet. I was a bigger fifth grader, but my buddy Tim, I don't think he'd hit a growth spurt since he was born. He's, <laughs> he's small, small dude. 
So I knew he wasn't going to be of no help to me in that moment. Well, they had bullied us like so long. And we were really, really late getting back to their house to get to church for the evening service. And so my dad got worried. And so he went out starting to look throughout the neighborhood because we weren't typically late for church. And, and um, he was wandering around. And by God's providence, one of the first places he let him look was in the playground of Fairfax Elementary School. And I could remember peripherally seeing him, his presence come around the corner down the driveway of Fairfax Elementary School. And he saw us over here pressed up against this wall with these five big dudes giving us a hard time. And so I saw my dad go from a walk to a gallop and then a gallop to a sprint, right? And he got right up in the face of the first of the biggest boy. And he said, do we have a problem here? And he goes, yeah, we do. And he goes, would you like to end it now? All right, so while my dad's toe-to-toe and face-to-face with this dude, ready to take on all five of them. My dad was a big dude, if he didn't know the history. (laughs) He's a big, intimidating dude, right? And when it came time to protect, my dad was going to protect at all costs. (laughs) So Tim and I know that these five guys, my dad has their attention, so what are we doing? We're just going to get out of here. Right? We just gave place to the wrath of my dad. You got this. It's all you. Way to go, dad. And I'll bet you my dad's bigger than your dad. Right? We gave place. That's the idea here. Don't take your own revenge, but give place to someone who's infinitely capable in great detail to act vengeance or to enact revenge. Folks, God can do that a whole lot better than you can. The understanding here, remember the flow of the context, folks. If you're not living on a right foundation, existing healthily in the community of God, understanding what love is and how it's holy and it relates and it's passionate and it's aware, you're going to be a person that's going to be a retaliator. You're going to be a person of revenge. So if that's your initial impulse and you act on it regularly, you are a most immature believer. Maturity doesn't have to react that way because it knows their God well and it can just step back, not have to raise your fist, but allow God to raise his and let him take care of it. And he'll do it omnisciently, omnipotently well. Okay. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And automatically, some of you who are older in the Lord might be thinking of Proverbs 25. Verses 21 and 22, and that's exactly where Paul takes this phrase from. Others of you might be thinking of Matthew 5, 43 in the Sermon on the Mount, or Luke 6, 27, and you are also correct that the Apostle Paul, in an inspiration of the Lord, is, is discussing here how we should respond. All right? If we were passively obeying in the first few imperatives, now we have an active opportunity to do something, and what do we do? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. 
And he borrows another understanding here from Psalm 140, where the Lord in his judgment does heap burning coals on the heads of uh, vitriolic unbelief, but here it's actually not um, contending with unbelief that puts the coals uh, on their head that God can do, but it's actually an act of kindness that has the same influence. It's an act of kindness of, an, uh, of a believer to an unbelieving enemy that has the same influence that God would have in righteous indignation, putting his enemy underneath his foot and stomping it out. It's the antithesis in action, but it's our action. It's our opportunity to be kind. And my friends, again, if you're not existing among unbelief, you're not going to understand this. You're, not, you're just not going to understand this. Because you may not have even had an opportunity. But the longer you're around unbelief and you're spending hours upon hours upon hours in the course of a month with unbelief, and you're living out your testimony and while you're trying to love them and win them to Christ, and whether they're converted or not, you're going to be their friend anyway without, without bending your moral code, Right? What you'll find out is this is going to be pretty much a regular opportunity for you. They will become your enemy from time to time, and then what's our opportunity? We're going to, we're going to do them some good, because I love them. I'm not going to retaliate penny for penny. I'm not going to seek any revenge. I'm not going to shy away and go recluse myself in my fortress. I'm going to I'm going to go buy him dinner. I'm going to go snow blow their driveway. I'm going to ask him to breakfast. You're thinking, what in the world? Why would you do that? Did you see what they just did to you? Yeah. But they're my friends. Today they're acting like an enemy, but I love them. And by the way, I've been praying for that guy for a long time. So it's not easy come, easy go for me at this point. Remember, we're at the end of chapter 12, not the beginning of it. This is long time enduring relationship for the sake of that lost soul to find life in Christ. And how far do we go down the road to harvest that soul? Amen. What's it really worth to you? Don't react, act. And this is how we do. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This phrase and this imperative phrase stands somewhat of a summary statement to really the initial directive on love given to us in verse 9, but really stands as a summary statement all of chapter 12 as well. A Christian who's built on the right foundation that exists healthily in the community of God and understands compassion, which is first holy compassion. Remember verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy because it abhors what is evil and clings to that which is good. And based on the moral code of that kind of love, 
and based on the flow of the whole context, by the time we get to verse 21, we find this imperative necessary for our lives because we may be weak in the flesh from some time, but we find this imperative generally doable in our lives because we've been walking according to the flow of this text. When it says here, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, remember this is kind of a peritonetic genre, and he's actually jumped to a different imperative here under the umbrella of commission, I believe. And the evil that he's talking about here is not necessarily grammatically connected to the evil of someone that you've had to just give a drink of water to, or, or someone you've had to decide not to repay penny for penny, or enact vengeance upon, right? It can include that, for those things are evil, but it generally includes all evil. In other words, he's saying here, a believer who's walking well with God, governed by the Spirit, word-saturated, well-discipled, being a discipler is someone that's generally not going to uh, be overwhelmed or live in the lifestyle of the wickedness of this world. So, there may be some of you who are just days old or weeks old in the Lord. And I know you're in the auditorium. And, and you're like, I don't know that I can say that I've even had enough time to be able to live out this imperative faithfully. I said, I, get, I understand that. I totally understand that. And you might feel like since you've been saved, you've actually failed more than you've succeeded. I understand that. That's why we're constantly in encouraging you to be with the Lord and then be with your discipler around the word of God to grow each other closer in Christ's likeness. And the Bible says you're still an infant. And infants get up and try to walk and they fall a lot. And there should be others around to help them. Learn how to get up and to walk again. But for those of you that have been in the Lord for decades, and when you think about the evil explicitly mentioned here in this context, and then generally mentioned here in verse 21, we ought to be in a place now in our lives where vengeance, retaliation, reaction instead of action is very rarely, if ever, part of our lives. We ought to generally be known as a people that evil's not having any victory over me. I'm not perfect. I'm progressing to be more like Christ, but I'm not going to let evil dominate me. And the root word here for overcome is familiar to many of you. The root word is the Greek word nikao. Right? Get our English brand name Nike. It means victor. Don't let evil win as a pattern of your life. But, what does it say here? Overcome evil with what? With good. The whole theology of what Paul means by doing good in different texts, we don't have time for this morning. But a lot of the good that's mentioned here is included in chapter 12. In the lifestyle of a believer that's generally been influenced by the gospel described in chapters 1 through 11. Now, as we close, let's have some specific applications. We've already mentioned the flow of the context of chapter 12 many, many times. In the context of Grace Church of Mentor, how in the world do we seek to continue to grow 
and not letting evil overcome us. And we've already mentioned a couple of those ways. You love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have a relationship with His Word, and communication with God in prayer. Maintain a very disciplined relationship with the person who's shepherding you, who's discipling you. Grow underneath them so long as they're growing to be more like Jesus Christ and following the person who's discipling them. You need to be further and continually saturated in the Word of God by being and gathering together as a local church as often as you can to be taught the Word of God and have it preached to you. Walk with the Lord. Walk with your discipler. Avail yourself to as many services as you can where the Word of God is taught or preached. In addition to those things, you have been provided for many, many varied ways to fellowship and interact at Grace Church of Mentor. Certainly that's a natural part of life or a spirit-filled believer, whether you're young or old in the Lord, is to crave Christian company and to crave Christian fellowship. Because yes, we are out in the world and we have those friends, but my friends, we cannot exist well with the outside unless we're living well on the inside. And again, the flow of the context of chapter 12 demands and shows that. The idea here is of overcoming is to be victorious. We're not talking about the victorious Christian life for those of you that know the various historic views of sanctification. We're not talking about Christian perfectionism. We're not even talking about having complete and total eradication of any one particular temptation in your life. We're talking about a general understanding of the character of your life and the direction of your life in a spiritual manner. You are a saint that is not known for being overcome by evil. Because, why? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. So keep growing. Keep growing. Keep growing. Keep growing. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace has saved you. That same grace compels you to continue on. Our love commissions us to relate with the unsaved. Our love demands this relationship not compromise our holy living. This love constrains us to take the highest ethical road when possible when attacked. And this love compels us to consistently saturate our lives with good so evil cannot have its governance in our lives. This love calls for Christian maturity as outlined in the whole chapter of 12 of the book of Romans. Those are safe and secure recommendations and applications to what love is here as we interact with those who don't know Christ yet. Right? Let's pray together.